Hello, friends and enemies. Welcome to a bonus episode of Hybrid Unlimited. You guys weren't expecting that, weren't you? Well, here's a little surprise. Given that most of you are bored at home, we thought that you might want to listen to this super entertaining podcast with the superstar, James Clear, author of Atomic Habits. We literally just got off the phone or the Zoom meeting with James like three minutes ago. Yeah. And uh, I think this is such, well, everybody's at home. This is a time where you can either start creating good habits and making positive changes, or you can create bad habits or continue with bad habits that you might have already. So And be a victim of your situation. You have the power to make a positive change for yourself given the current circumstances. Mm -hmm. And that's why we wanted to discuss the topic of habits. There's a lot of things that you can't control, but during this time, I think it's intelligent to focus on handling all of the things that are actually under your control and your day-to-day habits are definitely in that realm. Absolutely. This podcast is sponsored by Go Strong Equipment. As always, guys, a lot of the big uh, equipment manufacturers are not taking orders anymore. They're backed up. They're flooded. Ghost is still taking orders. So if you are stuck at home and you don't have a home gym, this is a great opportunity to get some amazing equipment customized to your liking, color schemes, logos, whatever you want. Check these guys out on Instagram at Go Strong Equipment uh, or check out their website. But either way... Whether it's for your home gym, your actual gym, you want to make the most of the situation, they're a great option. So check them out. Hope you enjoy. Let's get right into it. This is a, is a good point to start the conversation. Yeah, sure. So we know a little bit about your sports background, which is interesting. You jump from sport to sport at pretty high level. What about your academic background? Undergrad, I was biomechanics, uh, mostly chemistry and physics classes. I, I was always like more of a hard sciences guy. I think if I went back now, I would probably study biology. Um, but uh, anyway, so that was kind of my exposure to it was more on the scientific side. And then I went to business school. Uh, and so I got my MBA. And while I was in graduate school, I studied in the Center for Entrepreneurship. And I started to see all these people kind of spinning out their own companies and, you know, doing different startups. And I was like, I kind of like to try my own thing. And so I never have actually, I've never had a real job. Um, I had an internship between my first and second year of uh, grad school. But after I graduated, I decided to start my own thing. And that was about 10 years ago. Uh, the first two years, I kind of like flopped around and tried a bunch of business ideas that didn't work very well. And then after two years or so, I started writing at jamesclear.com. And that was when I started writing about habits and performance and behavior change and improvement. And um, that, for whatever reason, that just took off much faster. Uh, and so my training, when it comes to habits and behavior change, I don't have much formal training in like psychology, for example. But I also don't really care because I feel like um, my view is I'm kind of idea agnostic. Like, I don't care where a good idea comes from as long as it's a good idea. So you'll see principles in the book that are from biology or philosophy or neuroscience or, um, you know, psychology. And uh, my job is kind of to be the synthesizer of that. And then I, I feel like the ultimate test is do the ideas work in real life? Um, and so that was really what I tried to do when I wrote Atomic Habits was to come up with a, a guide that would work in daily life. There are a lot of good books that have been written about, you know, habits and how they work on a technical standpoint. 
Um, but one of the gaps I felt like that was in the market was how do I actually apply this? And so that's what my, my hope was when I was setting out and writing the book. Yeah, I would I would say that you achieved the goal of writing the best book in habits. I've I've read I'm big into self development and I've read a ton of these books. But one thing that I love the most about Atomic Habits was first of all how applicable it, it is, and secondly how many different strategies you suggest. Because you know we're all different, we all work differently. So right. you know one strategy that I might adopt might not be the same one that you adopt, and so on. So yeah, I just or love- even what works for you in a certain context may not work in a different context or situation. So it's kind of like you have more tools in your toolbox, you know, and whatever the environment throws at you, you want to be able to pull out the right tool. You keep pulling out the same thing and trying it. It's not going to work in every circumstance. Absolutely. What, um, what would you say it's the, what's the premise behind the book behind atomic habits? So I think there are probably multiple levels, but there's broadly speaking, there are kind of three big ideas. Uh, so the first big idea is that habits are the compound interest of self-improvement. So that, you know, same way that money multiplies through compound interest, the effects of your habits multiply as you repeat them over time. And so you can kind of view each little day as kind of like a little battle and your job is to win that day. And if you can get 1% better each day and you start stacking them up, then they don't just like add up in a small way. They can start to compound on each other. And one of the hallmarks of any compounding process is that the greatest returns are delayed. You know, all the benefits are out there in the future. And so the benefit of making a choice that's, for example, 1% better or 1% worse on any given day isn't really that much. You know, like the benefit of the difference between eating, uh, you know, an unhealthy meal for lunch today versus a healthy one. Well, on any given day, who really cares? You know, you go in the, you look in the mirror at the end of the night, your body looks the same, scale hasn't really changed. But if you turn around two or five or 10 years later, then you start to realize, oh, wow, that stuff really does add up. And um, so carving out that small margin for improvement and seeing habits as the compound interest of self-improvement, that's kind of the first big idea. Um, The second big idea, which connects directly to that, is that If you want to get 1% better each day, if you want to build those small habits on top of each other, what you really need is a system. And a lot of the the discussion about behavior change and performance improvement, the common narrative is, oh, maybe if you really wanted it, then you would do it, right? Like maybe if you had more willpower or grit or discipline, then you would make it happen. And certainly grit and perseverance, like they're very important qualities in life. But I don't know that that answer is quite right, because I think there are a lot of people who genuinely do want to improve or perform at a high level. If you're struggling to change, if you're struggling to improve, the problem usually isn't you. The problem is your system. And I think we could even go a step further and say, you don't rise to the level of your goals. You fall to the level of your systems. You know, and that's kind of the second big idea is that we often talk about change and about performance improvement as you need to set bigger goals, you need to be more ambitious, you need to 10x your outlook. But the truth is having the goal is kind of the easy part, right? Like like I can set a goal right now to sell 10 million books. You know, it took me like three seconds. Or uh, if you have, um, in most domains, if you look at the winners and the losers, they have the same goals, right? Like everybody who's competing in the powerlifting competition has the goal of winning, right? right. If you have a, a, a candidate apply for a job, you have a new job opening, hundred people apply. All hundred people have the goal of getting the job. And so if the winners and the losers have the same goals, 
then the goal cannot be the thing that makes the difference in their performance. It might be necessary, but it's not sufficient for success. Mm -hmm. And um, so that's kind of the second big idea is you don't rise to the level of your goals, you fall to the level of your systems. And I think we could maybe even put like a little finer point on it and say, what do I mean by that? Like your goal is your desired outcome, but your system is the collection of daily habits that you follow. And so if you want to build a better system, it's all about building better habits each day. And, um, you know, whatever results you're enjoying in life right now or that you're unhappy with, your current habits are perfectly designed to deliver your current results by definition, right? Like whatever system you've been running for the last six months is exactly what has delivered your current state or your current outcomes. Mm -hmm. So that, that reminds me of the quote, um, we're, we're all a hundred percent dedicated to our existing set of habits. Mm. You're like, you're perfectly aligned, right? Like whoever yeah. you are today is, is perfectly connected to that, to that, uh, set of habits or that system that you've been running. Yeah, absolutely. So that's sort of the second big idea. And then the, the third one, which is, I think the ultimate reason habits really matter and sort of the natural byproduct of those first two ideas that habits compound over time and that they create this system. And the, the third idea is that your habits are how you embody a particular identity. So you know, like any day that you wake up and make your bed, you embody the identity of someone who is clean and organized or any day that you get your workout in, you embody the identity of someone who doesn't miss workouts. Um, and ultimately what you're looking to do, like true behavior change is really identity change because it's not, um, once you identify as the type of person who, for example, I'm a runner, if you say like, I am a runner, well, then you run just because that's what you do, not because I'm training for a half marathon or something. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's the real place that we're trying to get to. Like the real goal is not to do a silent meditation retreat. It's to become a meditator. The goal is not to write a book. It's to become a writer. And once you start to assign those identities to yourself, I'm a writer I'm a meditator. I'm the type of person who doesn't miss workouts. I'm the type of person who finishes what they start those identities can be like these powerful little things that you carry around with you that become a, almost like a rule book to guide your behavior day in and day out. And so the, the third and final big idea is that every action you take is like a vote for the type of person you want to become. And it's kind of like every, again, this connects back to your habits. Every time you perform a habit, it's like you're casting a vote for being a certain type of person. So yeah, doing one set in the gym doesn't seem like much by itself. It's not going to transform your body, but it does cast a vote for I'm the type of person who doesn't miss workouts or I'm a power lifter or I'm a bodybuilder or whatever it is that you're trying to work toward. And so ultimately your behavior provides evidence of the type of person that you are. And I think this is a little bit different than what you often hear, which is like um, fake it till you make it. And I fake it till you make it. I don't necessarily have anything wrong with it. It's asking you to believe something positive about yourself, but it's asking you to believe something positive about yourself without having evidence for it. And we have a word for beliefs that don't have evidence, right? We call that delusion. Like at some point mm -hmm. your brain doesn't like this mismatch between I keep telling myself I'm this kind of person, but I'm not actually following through. Mm -hmm. And so my argument is to let the behavior lead the way, mm -hmm. to let the habits reinforce the identity of the type of person you want to become. I also think, I think I if you understand that, those three ideas, you put them all together, you kind of see the big arc of the book, which is we're going to make small improvements. We're going to get 1% better each day. We're going to build those into a system where you got a bunch of little 1% improvements all working in the same direction. And if you can do that, 
then you can become a new type of person. You can provide evidence of a new identity and, and upgrade the world yeah absolutely i was gonna say i also think that if you start saying things about what you are want to do or who you think you are before you have evidence for it or before you actually started taking action then it almost like gives you a sense of pleasure that it's already happening it's like a it, mm -hmm. which is not right well and that's i think that's why people like goal setting because it's literally the lowest value lowest effort action action loosely defined mm -hmm. uh that you can take right and it gives you that immediate dopamine hit of like i'm i'm making an effort to make a change and then i think for a lot of people that's enough to just keep them from taking any further action than every once right. in a while it's almost like a false sense of security it's yeah. kind of like um brainstorming business names and getting business cards and stuff and like none of that stuff actually is running a real business mm -hmm. but it makes you feel like you're moving toward running a business sure. and um in the book, I define the differences. It's kind of like the difference between motion and action, you know, and like a lot of people are in motion and they convince themselves they're actually moving forward. But really what you want is to be taking action. And um, in the case of like going to the gym, it, going and talking to a trainer is just motion. It doesn't matter how many times you talk to a trainer, you cannot get in shape from doing that. But actually doing, uh, putting the bar on your back and doing a set of squats is action. Like that actually can get a result. Um, and it doesn't mean that goal setting is totally useless, right? Like goals are useful for setting a sense of direction. They're useful as a, as like a filtering mechanism. If you know what your goals are and somebody comes to you and they say, Hey, I have this opportunity or would you be interested in helping out with this? And you look at it and you're like, Oh, that doesn't help me achieve my goals. Then it's easier to filter it out and to say no. Sure. So goals are helpful in a certain circumstance. It's just that I think they should probably get like 10% of our attention and the system should get 90%. And for most people, it's often the reverse. And um, so the, the focus should be much more on the behavior and the habits. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I see the same concept echoed a lot by Jordan Peterson in a bit of a different uh, like framing. You know, he talks a lot about how you can be a better contributor to society. And the best way you can do that is by making the smallest change that elicits a result. And that's sort of the same idea, I think, as, you know, giving yourself small wins to help change the identity, uh, your identity to one that, that aligns with who you want to be, you know, like his example, I think you even touched on it earlier. It's like, if you want, if you want to contribute to society, start by making your bed every morning, you know, and take those small steps and those small wins and let those snowball into bigger wins and, and ultimately a change in identity. I think that's really neat. And I also love the, uh, example, the analogy that you provide. I think it was about uh, bamboo, how it can take like four to five years to yeah. for the root system to grow underground. And uh, and then you see this incredibly rapid growing result, the the bamboo tree. But what you didn't see is the systems and the groundwork that was, was put into place to, to produce that. And uh, I think that's the problem that we get into with goal setting, like we said. So you're so focused on the end goal and you see people with that end goal, but you didn't see all the groundwork that went into that. Well, it's like all big things have small beginnings, you know, and like we, we focus on for whatever reason, society is very outcome focused. Um, you know, we, the news and social media just exacerbates this, but it's like, you only hear about something once it becomes newsworthy, right? You only hear about the Broadway show. Once it's a hit, you don't hear about writers sitting in the room, like writing the show, when they're sure. working on the script. You, you'll never see like a news story that's like man eats chicken and salad for lunch, right? It's only going to be like a news story when it's man loses a hundred pounds, right? right? Like you need to have the outcome before people talk about it. And I think that 
drives us to overvalue outcomes and to undervalue the process because it's all we see all day long. Um, so perhaps we think that goals matter more than they do. Um, my favorite, your example about the bamboo and kind of putting this work in, one of my favorite little examples of that, which I touch on in the book, is this quote that the San Antonio Spurs have hanging in their locker room. And, you know, they've won five NBA championships. And it says, whenever I feel like giving up, I think about the stonecutter who takes his hammer and bangs on the rock a hundred times without oh, yeah, a crack. That. And then at the 101st blow, it splits in two. And I know that it wasn't the 101st that did it, but all the hundred that came before. And like, there's so many things in life that are like that, right? It's not the last workout that sets the PR. It's like all the ones that came before. It's mm-hmm. not the last sentence that finishes the novel. It's all the ones that came before. And like, you need to keep hammering on the rock and putting in, showing up and putting that work in. Otherwise it's never going to split in two. And um, I don't know, people are so focused on the outcome of the rock splitting that what they really should be focused on is showing up each day and swinging the hammer. Because that's hard. How, how would you suggest people, you know, let's say, say I'm on, I'm on hammer stroke number 50. How, how do I know if that system is the right system that's going to get me to that 101th where the rock cracks, you know? Yeah, that's a good question. So there, I, I think there are kind of two things. Uh, the first is let's assume that you are running the right system. Um, it really helps to have some kind of feedback loop. It helps to get, you need to have some way to visualize your progress in the moment. Um, so like take my parents, for example, my, my mom and dad, they like to swim. And uh, whenever they get out of the water, their body looks exactly the same as when they got in, right? There's no visible change from doing the workout. But my dad takes out this little pocket calendar and he puts a little X on that day. And it's just like a little habit tracker, right? And it, it's a small thing, but what it does is it gives him some signal of progress that, hey, I did the right thing in the moment. I, I can notice, I don't have to wait for my body to change. I get some visual signal that this is what I was supposed to be doing today. And habit trackers like that, where you kind of build up your streak of X's or really any method of immediate feedback can be very helpful in the moment. Um, You know, I mean, this is one reason it's great to have like a hype man in the gym, you know, somebody to like cheer you on Mm -hmm. because then you're getting feedback right after you complete the set. You're not waiting until your PR goes up in three months or whatever. Um, So tightening that feedback loop is one very helpful way to do it. The other thing that you can do, and this kind of gets to your other point, which is how do I know this is the right thing to focus on in the first place? Maybe I'm running the wrong system here. And again, it comes back to feedback, but I think in this case, it's more about measurement. And really what you're trying to measure is not your position, but your trajectory. Um, And so a lot of people get focused very much on our current position. How much money do I have in the bank account? How much do I weigh? Whatever it is, they get locked in on like where they're at right now rather than is the arrow pointed up and to the right or down and to the left. And the focus should be much more on your current trajectory than your current position. So what you want is some kind of measurement, like take, for example, my business. Um, So like I measure email subscribers and uh, every day I log in and check like how many new email subscribers are we adding? And gradually over the course of the last few years, that number has continued to creep up. And like, I know that I'm running the right system if that number is increasing. Right. And, you know, pretty soon we'll, I don't know, we're like 700,000 now. Hopefully we'll hit a million by the end of the year. And uh, the only way that I got there, though, was by having some kind of feedback that said, oh, hey, you're on the right path. You need to keep doing what you're doing. You're adding more people. Um, So, again, I think it's feedback. But in this case, it's measurement. The one caveat I'll add there is 
generally speaking, I think it's best to choose a form of measurement that matches the frequency of the habit. So for example, with uh, exercise, a lot of people choose the weight, the number on the scale as the form of measurement, but that changes way too slowly to like, you need to be working out four or five times a week. And then the scale only changes the meaningful way once every two weeks or whatever. Right. Well, that's too slow for you to be seeing that each workout is worth it. What you really want is some kind of measurement that matches that frequency of four workouts or whatever. Um, and you know, like there are many ways to do that. In my case, I just write my workouts down in a journal. Um, but you know, you could measure heart rate, you could do all kinds of stuff. Um, but you want something that matches the frequency of the behavior. Can we take one step back? We were talking, uh, one step back to talk about how do you actually get on that trajectory? So your question was, how do you know that you're moving in the right direction and how mm -hmm. do you measure that? But can we take a step back and talk about how, because you make a, such an interesting point in your book about trial and error versus explore and exploit about how do you, how do you choose what to, what to spend your energy and your time on? And so you talk about genetics, you talk about skills and you talk about, uh, splitting your time a little bit and, and making sure that you're, while you're doing something, you're also trying to explore and find your, find other areas of interest and of where your skills might apply. Yeah. So, um, let me take like a kind of a multi-layered approach to this. So the, the first big level is, um, trying some, everything known comes out of the unknown. So when you are born, imagine like you have like a little uh, light coming out of you and you can only see a couple feet away, basically. You don't, you have no concept of what's in the rest of the world. But as you grow up and you start to walk around a little bit more, you start to learn what else is in the house. And then you learn what's in your neighborhood. And maybe you travel to a different city and you see a little bit of that. And you start to gradually that like what is known expands. And as that, um, as your understanding expands, you sometimes you find risks, sometimes you find things that aren't useful or that hurt you or whatever, but also there are a lot of rewards in the unknown. You can find a new idea or some a different strategy than you had been exposed to before. This is the whole process of education, right? You're like learning what else is out there. And that idea that exploring the world um, can deliver new rewards or new strategies is exactly what we're talking about here when we talk about this explore versus exploit trade-off. So in the real world, you're not the only person who is exploring. We've had, you know, hundreds of millions of people throughout history uh, that have also explored and tried things and given um, and learned different lessons. And so in many cases, uh, imitating whatever the best practice is, is often a really good strategy. You know, I mean, in the case of weightlifting, like you don't have to rediscover Um, a super normal stimulus or some kind of like progression, progressive overload. People have already discovered that and now you can imitate it and use it in your own programming. Um, however, there are still a lot of new interesting things to be found in any field. Um, so I mentioned like growing my email list just a few minutes ago. Well, I can imitate the best practices that other people are doing, but I should also probably spend some of my time trying new strategies that I haven't seen anybody try because maybe one of those will work really well. And so, Steffi, to your question, I think the way to balance this is called the explore-exploit trade-off. And what people find is that there are a couple different ways you can apply it. But generally speaking, early on in a situation, so let's say like early in your career, you're you know, 23 or 25 or something like that. You've got a long timeline ahead of you. 
that's probably a good time to try a variety of different uh, roles, maybe a couple different industries, try different jobs, see what you like because you have a long timeline ahead of you to exploit whatever the best option is that you come across. The uh, same thing is true on like a shorter time scale, like let's say a project, let's say you have like six weeks to finish a project. Well, maybe you should spend the first week exploring a bunch of different ways that we can attack that problem. And then maybe we'll come across something that we wouldn't otherwise uh, find useful. But then as you start to get closer to the finish line, like let's say now you're four weeks into the six week project or you're, you know, age 52 instead of age 22. Well, now you should probably start exploiting more what the best answer is that you found so far so that you can get some results before the clock is up. And um, that idea of the more that you're, um, the earlier you are, the more you should explore, the later you are, the more that you should exploit the best thing you found. That's kind of broadly useful. The second thing that's sort of broadly useful is the more that you're winning, the more you should keep exploiting your current strategy. The more that you're losing or not getting the results that you want, the more widely you should explore and try to find something that works better. So those are kind of two rough heuristics for how to use it. The way that you see this play out in a lot of uh, business contexts and daily life is that um, you roughly spend about, let's say, 80% or so of your time uh, exploiting the best strategies that you found, and then maybe 20% of your time exploring for new stuff and uh, trying to find maybe a, a golden nugget that nobody's unearthed yet. So, But both of those strategies are, are very useful ways to get results. You just need to kind of find the right way to balance I love the uh, the four questions or five questions that you bring down, bring up about narrowing down to like find something that you're good at. So it's not only about loving what you do, but about being able to handle the pain of the task. I love that because I think that from a very young age, our parents always tell, tell us to do what you love, you know, find something that you're passionate about. But I don't think success is only dependent on enjoyment enjoyment you know you have to have to go through not every single part of what you do you're gonna love and that's just the reality yeah that, that well everything requires sacrifice yes right and like what you're really trying to discover is what is the sacrifice that feels more natural to me yeah. you know like to a lot of people man this really seems like pain but to me it's like i can i seem to be able to handle the pain of this better. Mm -hmm. sure we, we just spoke recently um, at Ohio State, and one of the questions we got from someone was, when you're starting out a business, how do you avoid burnout? And our answer was like, you kind of don't, <laughs> you know, like sometimes you just have to suffer through that, that initial period of, of yeah. doing everything yourself and working your ass off. Uh, but you can handle it, right? Like to you exactly. two, it's like, no, it's, it kind of doesn't even feel like burnout. It feels like, you know, like it's hard work, but we, I don't know, we can handle it. You know, yeah. I, I think, um, Catherine Davis daughter, the CrossFitter says she like was doing an interview and somebody asked her like, you know, how do you sacrifice so much for, for this? Or like, you know, you're always training and, and she's like, if I could envision my ideal lifestyle, this is the one I would pick. Mm -hmm. So like, it doesn't actually feel like that much of a sacrifice to me. Right. It's not, it's not actually that terrible. Like to you from the outside, it looks terrible to me. It feels like this is what I want to be doing. Mm -hmm. Um, and that wherever you have that, most people don't even very successful people don't feel that way in most areas of life. Right. So like you could take, you know, I, I don't, I'm just going to use this example. I don't know if this is actually true, but like LeBron James, Training for basketball does not, it seems that he can handle the pain of that much better than most people can. But like uh, maybe writing a book, 
do you remember what it was like as like a sophomore in high school to write like a three page paper? Like most people hated that, right? It was so painful. (laughs) That that was not enjoyable at all. Um, And so maybe even LeBron, who is like elite in this one area, he may hate what it takes to be successful in a different domain. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of ways, like the quest of life is to find that area or maybe the two or three where the pain of it doesn't feel that painful to you where it feels like, actually, I was kind of made for this. And let me, you know, like, let me dive in. Yeah. And you mentioned the trajectory. So do you get results faster than other people? I think that one is huge too. It's something that I personally experienced with powerlifting. Well, what are the, what are the things that you say you need for success? Narrow down. Oh, me? Yeah. Well, you've always said it. It echoes the same sort of uh, idea. Yeah. It's what I, what the way that I see it and kind of like the way that I introspectively look at my own, uh, uh, journey has been about trying to trying to find a balance between your skills, your talents, and your passions. Where where you know your passion is something that the thing that gets you up in the morning, the thing that you lose track of time when you're doing. Your skills are something that you that you can develop. You know, it's something that you might not have today, but it's something that you can certainly uh, work on and and see improvements. And your talent is something that you're innately born born with. It's like so. aptitude. Your aptitude. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. to me, it's like a matter of balancing those three out. It's not only about one. It's not only about fa- finding one thing that you're passionate about. It's not finding a, something that you can tolerate, but that you're also good at and can progress fast at and that you have a natural aptitude for. So, yeah, no, that whatever that intersection is, the, the kind of that Venn diagram there, that's sort of what we're talking about here. You know, like your skills are the things that you can develop if you're willing to suffer a little bit more than most people would, right? Like you're willing to put the time in and build it. And then that second question that you just asked, like, where do you get results faster than other people? That's the talent and the aptitude part. Um, yeah, I, I think if you can go through those questions just as a filter, and there are many other ways to think about it too, but it helps to reveal a little bit of what, um, yeah, where, where you probably have a sustainable advantage, um, you know, over the, the rest of the world. And hopefully you can, you know apply that to a useful domain and then get some great results. Yeah. Two, two amazing quotes that I got from that chapter one, create a new game that favors your strengths and avoid your weaknesses. I love that. And the other one, I think I'm going to start using this one. Boiling water will harden an egg, but soften a potato. You can, can't control whether you're a potato or an egg, but you can decide to play a game where it's better to be hard or soft. Right. You just want to find an area where the odds favor you. Right. Like, yeah, some people are eggs and some people are potatoes, but you get to choose if it's better to be hard or soft in the particular game that you're working on. And um, yeah, so in that way, a lot of finding success with your habits and finding better results in life is kind of about strategy. Uh, it's, you know, and, and some of it is luck, too. Do you have the great the fortune to stumble across uh, an area where where you're successful? There's um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with this book it's called The Sports Gene. Uh, yeah. Yeah. David Epstein. Yeah. So, so David's a good friend of mine. And, um, I was talking to him about sort of related to this idea, which is, um, you know, like Michael Phelps could have been born into a family in India or somewhere, you know, so, somewhere totally different where he wasn't exposed to swimming at all. Still would have had the body to be the best swimmer of all time, but he just wouldn't have been exposed to it. And so he had like the good fortune of, um, being able to discover the area where he had these kind of advantages. And, if you think about it in that way, uh, in a lot of ways, success is just a matching problem, right? You're trying to match your talents and passions and aptitudes and skills with 
the domain that is best served for, you know, for what you are trying to match, whether you're a potato or an egg with the domain that's best served for that. And, um, that's a little bit of a different conversation than we usually have about success. We often talk about it like, no, you just need to try harder. You need a better strategy or whatever. But actually we're saying like, there's a, there's an overlap component of this, uh, overlapping person with the environment person with the circumstance. That's also very important. Uh, and I, I think, I don't think that gets discussed as much as some of the other, uh, factors. Yeah. Well, that, what's the, that quote, um, luck is when preparation meets opportunity. Yeah. You know, you can't really, you can't really have one without the other. So yeah. it is definitely something that's overlooked. And I think you ask a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, how they got to where they are. And a lot of times they'll attribute it a hundred percent to their systems or, you know, things that they actively did, but there's such a huge luck component you know, or a timing component, you know, the, the yeah. you know, that, uh, that no one really talks about because it's tough to sell, <laughs> you know, just make sure your timing's perfect in the right, right. economic <laughs> environment and stuff like that, you know, but yeah, I think you're definitely right that it's overlooked. Um, and there's another thing that I, I, I loved the, just the whole idea of, um, environment outweighing motivation and just setting up setting yourself up for success by controlling the things in your environment that you can control and i don't know if steph B told you or not but we actually had all of our staff read your book and um it's been really helpful especially in the uh with our nutrition coaching service because if you take the inversion of your first uh rule making making it uh obvious making you know the habit change obvious um the, the elimination of bad habits is something that is so huge on the nutrition side of things. And if you can control that environment, just like little things, our head coach, he's all, he tells people, you know, um, if you have food that's tempting to you, put it on, if, if you're like, if you're Steffi and you're a little vertically challenged, put it on a shelf you can't reach, you know? Right. So if, if, if she wants to have something that doesn't align with her goals, she has to go through the shame of asking me to get it for her, you know? And that's just one way that you can manipulate the environment to, to set yourself up for success, but it's just so applicable across so many things. And I think a lot of people, like the elimination of a bad habit through the change of environment, at least to me, and I think to a lot of people, is easier than creating a, a new habit that actually requires effort. So, it's definitely easier because sometimes all you have to do is just shift something in the environment and the habit either eliminates itself entirely or is curtailed to the degree that you're like okay with it. Like for example, um, I have this little sort of personal rule where I try, I have a home office, uh, but I try to leave my phone in another room until lunch each day. And so that gives me like, you know, three or four hours in the morning where I can work focused without having to have the phone on me. And it's only like 30 seconds away, right? Like I just walk down the stairs and go get it if I wanted it, but I never do it. And so I'm like, well, did I want it or not? Because like on the one hand, if it was right next to me, I'm like everybody else. I would check it every 30 seconds, right? But if it's in a different room, I never want to go get it. And I think there are a lot of habits that are like that, that are when they're obvious and frictionless and easy and available and right next to you, you'll do it all the time just because it's there. But if you just add a little bit of friction or you remove it, if you, you know, don't have the food in the household or you put it on the highest shelf or you uh, tuck it away in the back of the freezer where you're less likely to see it. I'm like that with, uh, with beer, for example, like if I, um, if the beer is at the front of the fridge and it's in like the, the door or something, I see it right away. I'll grab it at dinner just cause it's there. Mm -hmm. 
but if it's like tucked all the way in the back where I can't see it when I open up the door, sometimes it'll be in there for like three months. I like won't even remember that we have it. And um, there are a lot of things that are like that. We make choices based on the path of least resistance. And so what you want is to redesign your office, your kitchen, your home, so that you've made, you know, maybe a dozen or 20 or 50 even of those little choices that make good habits the path of least resistance. And it's a lot easier to make good choices when you're surrounded with an environment that kind of promotes those. Mm -hmm. um, and so in that way, I, I don't even know that people think about it like that, but they're often trying to swim upstream because their environment is pushing them one direction, but they say that their goals or their priorities are moving in another direction. Um, you know, you like, you say that you want to lose weight or get in shape or whatever, but if your commute on the way to work takes you past eight fast food restaurants, mm -hmm. well, you're trying to fight against that every day in your environment. Um, and some of that, of course, you don't have control over where fast food restaurants are located, but you do have control over the route that you take on your commute um, or over what's in your kitchen or what's in your living room and so on. And so, um, yeah, to employing that strategy, that idea of environment design to make the good behaviors more obvious and uh, reduce the friction, it can go a long way. It can, it can make a surprising difference for it not taking that much time to just adjust a few things. James, can we uh, cover quickly uh, what your definition of habits are and how they work? Sure. So there are a couple different ways to think about habits. Um, you know, the probably like the technical technical definition or the more dictionary definition is a behavior that you've repeated enough times to be more or less automatic. Mm -hmm. So brushing your teeth, tying your shoes, unplugging the toaster after each use, things like that. Um, every time you pick up the barbecue tongs, you have to tap them twice, whatever things that you just kind of like get in the, the habit of doing you, they're almost like mindless. Um, but I think the perhaps the more useful way to think about habits or define them is that they're behaviors that allow you to solve the problems of life with less energy or effort than you would otherwise need. So, you know, the first time that you tie your shoe, somebody has to teach you how to make the loops and you think very carefully about it. And if you had to think that carefully about like how to do it every time, it would be kind of a pain that would take you a little while. But after you do it a hundred or a thousand or 5,000 times, well, now you're tying your shoes while you're talking to somebody or thinking about your to-do list for the day or whatever. And so habits are these like mental shortcuts that free up your attention and energy to focus on other areas. And because you're building habits constantly, not only tying your shoes and making the toast and so on, but just how you live your normal life, as you go on uh, throughout life and you build more habits, you're able to kind of like go through daily life fluently. Uh, and now you can start to focus on like whatever the problem of the day is rather than uh, all the stuff that you normally do. So that's sort of the role or the purpose that habits play. And whenever possible, you know, attention, attention is kind of like the bottleneck of the brain in the sense that you can only focus on one thing at a time, right? The fact that I'm here right now, talking to you means that my attention is here and I can't be writing a book chapter at the same time or doing a workout or whatever. And so whenever possible, your brain wants to learn habits so that you can do two things at once uh, so that you can chop the vegetables and also listen to a podcast. And the only reason you can do that is because you chopping the vegetables is not autopilot. It's just a you know habit that you can do without having to think about it. So um, in that way, habits are like, these little algorithms or program, these little cognitive scripts, you just play them whenever the context is right. And uh, they help you solve all these problems of life without having to think about it. 
Cool. I a, well, can I go first? Yeah. All right. Or you want to go first? No, you go ahead. Because I'm, I'm going to switch gears in a second. Okay. Um, I think one of the most difficult parts, at least, at least for me, about creating new habits. So we already talk about, you know how to get rid of bad habits, but about creating habits that you think would uh, benefit you is that it requires planning. So, you know, some of the strategies that you mentioned, like implementation intention, habit stacking, um, temptation building, you know, all of these different strategies that by the way are amazing. Like I think they're, I'm, I'm excited to start implementing them. The two minute rule even, for me, the most difficult part is that they require a little bit of planning on my end. Like, I feel like I need to sit down and think about how I'm going to do it the next day. Mm. And to a certain extent, that's what prevents me from actually getting started. Yeah. You know, obviously like, and I think that's the thing about habits that motivation, grit, willpower, passion, those are sexy things. And it almost makes them seem like they're just easier to implement, just kind of just have it. You just mm -hmm. have to be passionate. You just have, but in order to actually create a good habit, it requires some work and some planning. That's a good point. Yeah. Uh, building better habits, especially not just a single one, but you know, a lifestyle of improvements, it requires a little bit of a plan. Um, now I try in the book to make that plan like as simple or as easy as possible. So it doesn't take that much time. Like the, you mentioned the two minute rule. I think that's a good place to start for most people. So the, the two minute rule says, whatever habit you're trying to build, you take it and you scale it down to something that takes two minutes or less to do. So read 40 books a year becomes read one page or do yoga four days a week becomes take out my yoga mat. And so there, right there, we are, we have a little bit of a plan, right? My plan tomorrow is I'm just going to take the yoga mat out. Now, some people don't like that or they resist it a little bit because they're like, okay, I know the real goal isn't just to take the yoga mat out. I know I actually want to do the workout. So if this is some kind of like mental trick and I know it's a trick, then why would I fall for it basically? And I, I get where people are coming from, but I, I mentioned the story of this guy named Mitch in the book and he, he lost over a hundred pounds. And for the first six weeks that he went to the gym, he had this little rule where he wasn't allowed to stay for longer than five minutes. So he would get in the car, drive to the gym, get out, do half an exercise, get back in the car, drive home. And it sounds ridiculous, right? It's not, you're like, okay, clearly this is not going to get the guy the results that he wants. But what you realize if you step back is that he was mastering the art of showing up, right? He was becoming the type of person that went to the gym four days a week, even if it was only for five minutes. And I think that this is like a much deeper truth about habits that also comes back to your question a little bit, Steffi, which is, a habit must be established before it can be improved, right? It has to become the standard in your life before you can optimize it or scale it up. And so the more that we focus on, oh, I need to have this big plan or I need to uh, do this in like this excellent way. I need to, I, I want to do yoga, but I'm not going to do it just for five minutes. I'm going to do it for 45 minutes, five days a week or whatever. Uh, the more that you try to perfect the plan in the beginning, the more it provides resistance to getting started. And so the two minute rule kind of helps you master the art of showing up, make sure that you have something to optimize, right? If you don't, if you can't be the type of person who does one push up, there's nothing to, to scale. There's nothing to improve. Mm -hmm. And so uh, some of those strategies are meant to make it as easy as possible to start so that you can, the, the other, the other piece about planning that I thought of as you were asking that question is planning is something that you can revisit, right? Like no decision is permanent. And so you don't have to pay all the cost up front right now. 
if you can become the type of person that's uh, doing it day in and day out, then you can come back and revisit it and, you know, tweak it down the line. So um, all of that kind of works together to say, find the smallest way to get started and uh, become the type of person that shows up consistently. Mm -hmm. And then you can tweak and improve and uh, scale the plan up from there. Mm -hmm. I've always said that. Keep showing up. Yeah, that's something that we've preached before, you know, a little in a little bit different of a framing, uh, not the five minute uh, at the gym rule, but just for people who struggle with motivation, just making it a habit to at least go to the gym and do something, you know, if it's say, no matter what, I'm going to go walk on the treadmill for 10 minutes. And then you usually find that once you do that, you get there, you get over the biggest hurdle, which is showing up and starting the workout, you know, you're going to walk on the treadmill and then you're going to say, or sometimes you don't even have a good workout. When I was in grad school, my, my doctor in physical therapy, and I was trying to train for the Olympics. I had two workout sessions a day, nine times per week, grad school, starting a business. Sometimes I would go to the, I would have this conversation with myself about how I didn't want to go to the gym, right? I didn't feel motivated. I'm tired. I'm mentally, mentally exhausted. I have homework. I have to work on my thing and I didn't want to go, but I would just go at least just show up. I had the barbell in my car. I would go in there. I would start moving. And sometimes I would have amazing workouts, hit some PRs and be totally surprised. And yeah, sometimes I would go in and start moving and feel like crap and leave. And you usually end up doing more than whatever you plan the bare minimum to be. Exactly. You know, that's the same thing. I think both of those things are true. Like a lot of the time you'll surprise yourself. All the, what you're saying, Hayden, all the friction is up front, right? Right. Like once, once you get in, then it becomes easier to continue. Maybe you surprise yourself how much you do. But I also, when, when I was finishing Atomic Habits and then when I was on uh, book tour and I, it was just an insane schedule, I did like you know, 14 countries in six months, and like all this stuff. I was just trying to, there were so many times that I would go to the gym and I would just squat. That's all I would do. And then I'd leave. And um, I almost think that the bad workouts were more important than the good ones because almost invariably, whenever I would show up and I didn't feel good, but I would just get in there and I would squat and I'd leave 30 minutes later. Uh, like the next week I'd have a really good lift. And I almost knew that the only reason that one was good is because I made the effort to get in there on the day when I felt bad. Absolutely. It's like if you only lifted when you were like, Oh, I feel good. I could hit a PR today. You would never hit PRs because you would only go like four days a month. Right. And I think, I think depriving yourself of doing something good, even in a small way, because you can't do it in the best way possible. It's like getting a flat tire and then popping your other three tires, you know, just cause you can't, you, cause the one is, is out of commission. You know, it just, it, it's so counterproductive to the overall goal because making any sort of progress or any sort of steps forward is always going to be better than, than none or setting yourself back. And also, at least for me, you know, you mentioned how, how your behaviors become your identity at that point, you know, just showing up, it's not even a matter of, of, uh, resonating with your identity of being an athlete It's about resonating with your identity of being strong and resilient and sticking to commitment and sticking to your commitments. That was more important to me than even my identity as an athlete. I don't want to be. That's why I love that identity of I'm the type of person who doesn't miss workouts. Yeah. Cause even if I only went and squatted for 30 minutes or did five pushups or whatever, like at least I didn't miss that day. And I think in the long run, that identity, adopting that, believing that you don't miss workouts and showing up each time, that pays off way more than whatever that one workout would have paid off for if you were able to stay there for an hour instead of 30 minutes or whatever. So, um, yeah, I'm totally with you. I think that that's one reason why I feel like identity-based habits are so powerful is that they help get you to show up even on the bad days. Yeah. 
to piggyback off the in t- topic of environment, um, you touch on how tribe behaviors are always going to, or more often than not, are going to outweigh the habits and behaviors of the individual. So it's good to align yourself with people who have, you know, the habits that you desire to have where you're going to be rewarded for, or, you know, praised for doing those good habits. Um, but I think a lot of people now, especially because social media is so popular and, you know, you see all these people who have achieved a high level of success and sometimes they've, got to skip that process of actually having good habits or good systems. You know, you see it all the times with all the time with musicians and, you know, different celebrities who they're not really living a great, they're not really setting a great standard, but what they're able to do because of their success is attractive. And I think some people get caught into the trap of aspiring to be like those people. And then therefore inadvertently pick up on their systems, which are not really conducive for most people to achieve success. Is there, is there a way in your opinion for people to sort of navigate that, you know? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think there are two really important points there. The the part about social media is tough because um, you really don't know what their systems are because all you're seeing are the highlights, you know, like you're only seeing this little snippet of the overall movie. And, um, I like this line, Naval Ravikant, he's an investor and entrepreneur, and he said something along the lines of like, you can't cherry pick portions of people's lives that you want to replicate. Like you either need to pick the whole thing or nothing, because if you only say, oh, I want a best-selling album. Well, okay, that's fine. But like, you also have to want the eight hours a day in the recording studio and the band tour and sleeping in a different hotel, 52 nights out of the, you know, like you need all of that because that's what is required for that outcome. So you don't just get to take the good things from people's lives and then not replicate the sacrifices. And people tend to not post the sacrifices. They just post the, um, the outcomes. So I think there's like, in, in that way, social media, without necessarily anybody trying to be deceptive, it's inherently deceptive because you don't see the full thing. Um, so I think just understanding that, acknowledging that, knowing it can help insulate you a little bit. Um, but the second thing is, and this comes back to what we were talking about earlier, this focus on systems rather than goals or on process rather than outcome what you're looking to do, the tribe that you're looking to, to adopt or to, um, to become a part of is the tribe that has the habits that you want to have. The thing that, the thing that you want to replicate is the lifestyle, not the outcome, right? Like the outcome hopefully will be a byproduct of the lifestyle, but what you're trying to find are people who know how to live well, people who know how to perform and, um, have a process that you want to follow day in and day out. It's kind of like, the question to ask is not like, what do I want my best accomplishment to be? It's what do I want my normal day to look like? Because if you're replicating the normal day of the right people, then the outcomes will be there anyway. So I think there's a little bit of shift in perspective there. Um, the second point, the, the, what you started with mentioning about like social norms, the tribe, the expectations, the crowd, that's a very powerful way to change behavior and influence behavior. And I think, I wrote a chapter on it in Atomic Habits. I think it's chapter nine or 10. It's on uh, the influence of family and friends on your habits. So I, I knew that it was important enough to write a chapter on. But since the book has come out, I think this is one area that's even more important than I realized. Um, that we are so heavily influenced by the tribes that we belong to and the expectations of the people around us. 
it's almost like a fish being in water where it's like, what is water? Like we don't even notice anymore that the expectations of other people are influencing us, you know, like, um, you move into a new neighborhood and you see that your neighbor is like mowing their lawn and trimming their hedges and stuff. And you're like, Oh, we need to get our like landscaping done or something. And it's like, you'll mow your lawn for the next 30 years, right? Like we wish that we could have that level of consistency with our other habits, but we do it there. Why? Well, partially it feels good to have a clean lawn, but mostly it feels good to have a clean lawn because you don't want to be judged by the other people in the neighborhood. Right. And so it's actually the social expectation that drives the behavior. And there are a lot of things that are like that in life. And so I think the punchline, the practical takeaway is you want to join a group where your desired behavior is the normal behavior. Because if it's normal in that group, like think about all the people that you guys hang out with on a daily basis, other coaches, people training, whatever, like the idea of being in the gym for hours each day or training five days a week, it's completely normal in the group that you're hanging out with. Right. Mm -hmm. For there, I, I tell this sometimes to some of my readers who are like trying to build exercise habits or whatever. For many people, getting in the gym consistently feels like a sacrifice. It feels painful. It feels like it's hard. It's not normal. But there is a whole nother group of people who that is just what the average day is like. It is not a sacrifice. It's not strange. It's just this is what we do on Mondays, you know. And uh, the same thing is true for almost every other domain of life. If you hang out with a bunch of jazz musicians, then playing an instrument six days a week seems totally normal because that's what everybody else around you is doing. Mm -hmm. And um, ultimately, we really want to fit in. We want to belong. And so nobody wants to be lonely in no matter what area of life you're talking about. And so if people have to choose between, I get the habits that I want to have, but I'm kind of cast out and I'm like judged by the people around me, or I have habits that I kind of don't love, but I get to fit in and I like belong with the group. Most people will choose belonging over loneliness. They'll, the desire to belong will overpower the desire to improve. Mm -hmm. And so the good news is you don't always have to choose, but it comes down to finding those people where your desired outcome, your desired behavior is normal in that group, because it'll help you not only get the results you want, but also fit in and belong and feel, um, yeah, like you're connected. And we need, those are both desires that we need. So you want to try. Now, when you were doing uh, Olympic weightlifting, were you training in a team setting? With yeah, and so we, we had uh, we had like five of us really that were training um, probably like four plus times a week. Uh, was, was that part and of so your that, decision matrix to insert yourself into a group where, you know, they had the habits of training and, and you know, yeah, get positive it was feedback? Uh, it was interesting. I was in graduate school at the time um, and they had been most of the people, the coach and like probably three of the, the people been trained together previously. And I kind of like squeezed myself, <laughs> squeezed myself into this group and they were very nice and accommodating and, and it was great. And uh, it was cool because that was actually the time that Holly Mangold was training for the Olympics in 2012 in London. And she ended up making it a couple, about a year and a half after I started training there. Um, so she qualified and it was, it was very, it was an education for me in addition to being a good environment. Like you also got to see what it takes to make the Olympics and what it's like to train, uh, in that way. And, um, you know, even though I was nowhere close to qualifying myself, uh, it was, it was a very, uh, cool uh, experience to be in an environment like that. And I think I probably soaked up a lot of positive things just naturally, right? Like even you're not even really looking for it. You're just, um, yeah, you're just getting it because you're there. 
And so there are a lot of ancillary benefits to getting yourself in. Sometimes I'm kind of writing a little bit more about, about some of these ideas right now. And um, the way that I'm phrasing it now is like, you're looking for productive sandboxes to play in, you know, like that was a very productive sandbox for me to go join. And then like all kinds of good things were happening there. And I didn't know exactly what the outcome was, but I knew that if I could get myself in that room, then a lot of good things could happen. So you can apply that to anything, right? Like the schools that you go to, the career you go into, the industry, the people you hang around, your friends, like you want to find as many productive sandboxes as possible and just let the good things kind of naturally bubble up. James, we're approaching the one hour mark and I want to be mindful of your time. I first have a personal question that I can't uh, leave this conversation without asking you. So the biggest habit that I have trouble forming is waking up early like at the first with the first alarm and no matter what i do oh, i end up yeah that drives me crazy her, her she'll snooze at her least alarm they set up an alarm bro. 15 times <laughs> yeah seriously it's so bad no matter what i do i can't not snooze <laughs> are you um do you need the extra sleep like do you do you want to sleep in or is it more like no i have enough sleep i just didn't want to get up yet in, okay, well, I definitely have enough sleep, but in the moment, more sleep seems like what I need. Yeah. <laughs> even though it's definitely yeah. not. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this could be one of the times to maybe try some of that environment design idea. Uh, so rather than having, I, are you using your phone as your alarm clock? I'm just pressing snooze on that. So uh, charge the phone in a different room, in the bathroom or somewhere else, like force yourself to get out of bed. One of the strategies that one of my readers tried, I don't know if it'll work for you, but they they move the phone from the bed to the bathroom uh, and they're charging in there and they have to get up and turn it off. And the night before they would turn uh, pour a glass of water and have it next to the phone. And so their new routine became, I got out of bed, turned off the phone. I drank a full glass of water. And by the time they finished the glass of water, they were like, all right, fine. I'll just take a shower and get started. But um, so the key was finishing the glass of water though. They needed just enough time to separate that. And like, you know, if they just, You may, and honestly, like uh, the way that I said, um, success can be just taking out the yoga mat or reading one page or whatever. Success could be just charging the phone in the bathroom, getting up and turning off the alarm. If you go back to bed, maybe that's fine in the beginning, but you're just trying to establish the new, the new routine. So um, anyway, give that a try and see if that is. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, that's great. I'm going to try it. I'll let you know how it goes. Yeah, well, hopefully well, because one, one alarm is better <laughs> yeah, than 15. For everybody's sake. <laughs> awesome, James. Thank you so much for the conversation. I really, really appreciate your time. You're absolutely brilliant and humble, and it's been awesome to meet you and get to chat with you for a little bit. Yeah, yeah like, great. I'm excited, too. Thanks for uh, giving me some time, and uh, I'm glad you all enjoyed the book. Thanks for reading it. Yeah, our whole staff too. Like I said before, I think it's uh, it's it's done a lot to help uh, our business and the service that we can offer to uh, to our members. So thank you for that. Where can people find you? So if you want to check out my writing, uh, you can just go to jamesclear.com. Uh, probably aside from Atomic Habits, which of course is probably the best place if you want more uh, info based on the, the conversation we just had. Feel free to check out the book. But um, I also write a popular newsletter each week. Um, so. It's called three, two, one. Uh, it's three short ideas from me, two quotes from other people, and then one question to think about throughout the week. But uh, you can find the book and the newsletter and sign up for that all at James Clear. Excellent. And for anyone who's listening, pick up a copy of Atomic Habits on Amazon or anywhere else. It's an amazing book. It'll transform your life. Thank you, James. Great. Thank you. Awesome.